Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Rock Kubatko. Rock covers the Orioles for Masson. You could give him a follow on Twitter at Masson Rock. That's Rock with an H. Rock, thanks so much for joining the podcast today. Hey, my pleasure. I know it's the standard spelling of rock, but it's probably good to include the H anyway, just so people don't get confused. That's right. There's probably some uh, phony with a K at the end, and uh, it's, a, exactly. it's causing don't a Twitter controversy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what initially attracted you to baseball in the first place. Well, I mean, as a kid, I was just a huge sports fan, and it was, you know, everything, baseball, football, basketball, whatever. And... Uh, I didn't have a, a large skill set, but I did like to write, and I like sports. I figured I'd combine the two. And uh, Also, you know, the odd couple. That series zone, when I was a kid, and Oscar Madison looked like he had it made. I mean, he got to, you know, sit in the press box and, and watch games or write on his typewriter and sit on his bed and drink beer and eat a tuna fish sandwich. It looked a lot easier than it actually was. Uh, so then, you know, I ended up writing for uh, the Baltimore Sun for over 20 years, and you start out doing the uh, – usual preps in the small colleges, and all of a sudden I helped out on the Oriole coverage, uh, 21-31 with Cal and uh, the playoffs in 96, and then all of a sudden uh, there was an opening on, in 97 on the beat, and I've been covering the team since then. That must have been exciting, being there for Cal's moment, breaking the streak. Were you there at that game? Were you covering that game? Yeah, I did the, the 21-30 and 31. I was part of a large coverage team at the Sun, which meant I was in the auxiliary press box which is just like the, the left field seats but that was good enough for me and I was actually supposed to work on the uh, do the sidebars yeah they were playing the angels so I was supposed to write a sidebar on the angels reaction to Cal when uh, it, the streak when the record became official and I was so mesmerized by his lap around the field the guy next to me elbowed me to remind me hey you're supposed to be looking at what the angels are doing right now I kind of forgot that they were lined up applauding them because I was just so uh, locked into Cal, but yeah, so that was a uh, that was a good way to get my feet wet on the beat. And '97 uh, was my first full season. And they went wire to wire, and I thought, man, every year I'm going to get to cover a winning team and the playoffs. And then, of course, that was followed by 14 straight losing seasons. So that was sobering. Well, you're in a position now with the Orioles, where I think they've won the most games in the American League over the last five years, but no one really knows how they do it. How do the Orioles maintain a winning team over the last five years? That probably explains why they're picked last every year. It doesn't matter what they do. They go into the offseason as the team is going to finish in last place because people can't figure out why this happens, and they assume eventually the luck's going to run out. But we're talking five straight non-losing seasons. They had the one 500 season in, in 2015, and playoffs through the last five years. Uh, and it's a combination of things. I mean, Dan Duquette does a really good job with, uh, under this, in this, within this budget of finding these bargains and finding these pieces, he's building the roster throughout the season. So he might sign somebody in in uh, November you're barely paying attention to, or in June or whatever, and all of a sudden that guy is helping them win a couple games. Uh, he's constantly tinkering, and he's uh, he's really good at waiting out the market. I know t- tests the uh, patience of fans when you do that, but he ends up getting guys like a Nelson Cruz that falls into his lap, and guys like that, and. And uh, also, you know, Buck Showalter. I mean, I can't stress enough that he's one of the biggest additions in the history of this franchise. I mean, he, he basically reversed a losing culture in Baltimore, and that's got to be one of the hardest things to do for any manager or coach. Uh, as soon as he showed up, it was instant credibility. And I remember players saying, man, we're on our toes now and got to mind your P's and Q's. And I'm sure the former managers were like, well, why weren't you doing that when I was here? But the Orioles had a lot of guys that, you know, it was their first time as managers and they were getting their opportunity in Baltimore. And then here comes Buck with his track record for winning. 
and uh, really did make a, a huge change. The players love him, but they also respect him, and they play hard for him, and it's it's kind of a good balance there. And uh, it just seems to work. But, you know, again, they're being picked near or at the bottom of the division again in 2017. So we'll see what happens. But they feed off of that. They love that nobody takes them seriously and the critics are all over them and they get overlooked. I think they prefer it that way. And then they just go out there and they win games. They did just make a trade recently. A few days ago, they traded Giovanni Gallardo for Seth Smith. Gallardo, they signed last year, didn't quite produce the way they wanted to. Was this a salary dump? Do they like Smith as a player as well? Was it a combination of both? I think it's more just that that Smith filled a need. And by the way, the way you said Gallardo, that Baltimore accent was coming through there. That was was outstanding. I'm from Boston, so hey, I don't know where that came from. (laughs) But somehow it sounded like Baltimore. I don't know how you did that. But I don't think you can say Gallardo without sounding like you're from Baltimore. But really, they they were really looking for a left-handed hitting corner outfielder with on-base skills. I mean, they always rank near at the bottom uh, in the league in on-base percentage. They wanted to improve that. And Smith's a guy they've liked for a lot of years now, and he was more appealing really than anybody on the free agent market at this point. And they were able to go ahead and, and really solve two needs. I mean, they were, they were able to get this guy, left-handed hitting corner outfielder, on-base guy, but also they had six starters for five spots. And it was going to be especially tricky because – of what Gallardo, Abaldo Jimenez, and Wade Miley were set to make combined, that was, that was a lot for you know, the last three spots in a rotation when you had the two openings. They were able to go ahead and free up a spot, and it probably wasn't a large market for any of those three guys. But they found a team, Seattle, that matched up, so it really worked out for them. Now they're back down to five starters, and if they want to go ahead and maybe try and acquire another veteran, maybe a triple-A guy that they could move up later or – have the open competition again and bring in somebody else, but at a lesser cost, they can, uh, they can go ahead and do that. But uh, so really it, it seems like on paper, it certainly worked out well for the Orioles. And I wouldn't be surprised if Gallardo ended up having a, a big bounce back season in Seattle, pitching at Safeco. And, you know, when he, when he was signed, they had to restructure his contract from three years to two with an option because, uh, you know, they, they looked at the physical and they had concerns about the shoulder. And sure enough, he ended up on the DL with tendonitis and missed a couple months of the season. And so they never really got to see him at his best. He's healthy now. He's been working out really hard. He's in great shape. But if he had stayed in Baltimore, I know Buck Showalter kept predicting he's going to have a big bounce back year. Well, now that could happen somewhere else. And that would make the Orioles happy. They really like it when the trade works out for both sides because that team's willing then to deal with you more. Uh, interestingly, Seattle keeps dealing with the Orioles and they've really gotten the best of them in, in a couple trades here. But uh, I think it's a trade that's going to work out for both sides. Mark Trumbo led the American League in home runs last year. He had 47. Do you see a reunion with Baltimore, or is he gone? I will never say never, but it doesn't look good at this point. Uh, you know, there hasn't been any sort of progress at all in talks between the sides. The Orioles had the offer out there, uh, believed to be four years and around $52 million, and that came off the table. And, you know, you take that with a grain of salt. They took the offer to Chris Davis off the table last winter and ended up signing him. But the owner got involved in that case, Peter Angelos, and they were actually able to go ahead and sweeten the deal a little bit and work some things out, deferred money, whatever, and they were able to get it done. I don't think there's that same commitment with Mark Trumbo. They would like to have him back, but I think there's kind of a firm line drawn in the sand. And uh, there's kind of an internal tug of war because as much as they like the idea of having him back and they don't really want to lose that much power because you're also probably losing Matt Wieters and maybe Pedro Alvarez, at the same time, they really covet that draft pick that's attached to him. And it's not going to be as appealing with this new collective bargaining agreement from this point going forward. So this is their last chance to really get the good pick for, for losing a free agent. I think that pick appeals to them. And they figure, you know, for the money they're willing to spend, they could go ahead and, and use it in other ways and, and maybe get a shorter-term uh, 
kind of commitment for designated hitter because they prefer not having Trumbull in right field anyway. They want a defensive upgrade. So instead of ha- paying all that money to have him DH, maybe they can go a different route, maybe Pedro Alvarez or another left-handed hitting outfielder, even though they do have Smith, that could kind of rotate into the DH spot, and Smith could do that on occasion, and Kim could do that on occasion. So I think they're kind of looking at it, you know, that they might be better off going that route. That said, all it takes is one phone call, talks could heat up again, some compromises could be made, and maybe they get it done. But it doesn't look promising at this point. Well, we're almost in uh, mid-January, so it's almost time for the Orioles to strike on the free agent market now. Are, are, are the prices come down enough with players like Jose Batista? I know Duquette said that he wouldn't sign him earlier, but it looks like he may be open to a one-year deal at this point. Do you think that there'd be any interest there? Yeah, I think every time a team signs someone really late in the offseason, they should send the check to Dan Duquette. That's kind of his move. I mean, he's he's really perfected that. Uh, I, I just don't see Bautista still, and I kind of checked around on that because all of a sudden, you're right, with him dropping down to possibly a one-year deal, all of a sudden that becomes more Oriole-friendly, and you think they might be like, you know what, maybe he's not such a villain in Baltimore. Our fans will understand, but I don't think he's going to end up settling for the type of deal like Nelson Cruz did when it was one year, $8 million. Last I heard, he was still hoping to get around or above the qualifying offer total. Uh, and uh, Plus, the Orioles really don't want to give up the draft pick attached to him. I mean, that's one of the things, again, it's so appealing about if you don't re-sign Trumbo, you get the draft pick. Well, they don't want to go ahead and turn one over to get Jose Bautista, uh, whose numbers are in decline. That said, I know there are people in the organization that say, you know what, one year of him is DH, part-time right field. That would, that would work out pretty well for us, but I still don't see it happening. I just don't think they're going to give up that pick. I think they'll go in a different direction, and it could be a Pedro Alvarez type. Uh, there's still some corner outfielders, Moss, Saunders, Michael Bourne, they're open to bringing him back. Somebody like that that they could sign later. Uh, it's always a gamble when you wait. I mean, patience pays off a lot of times, but then other times, you know, guys can start coming off the board if you don't act quickly enough, and suddenly you're right, really running out of options. But I have no doubt that they'll go ahead and make another acquisition in January. There'll be an acquisition in February, and I'll be on guard for something in March because that's just how this team operates. I want to pivot off of the Orioles and talk about the Hall of Fame. Your ballot this year was Barry Bonds, Jeff Bagwell, Roger Clemens, Mike Mussina, Edgar Martinez, Tim Raines, Pudge Rodriguez, Vlad Guerrero, Trevor Hoffman, and Lee Smith. It was the first time you voted for Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens. What made you vote to yes on them? And that's really been a, a kind of a hot button topic. I know with a lot of uh, a lot of people, I wasn't the only one. I was really surprised by how much their vote totals increased. And I think there are different reasons. I can say that nothing to do with Bud Selig. I know there's a popular theory that some people, once the Veterans Committee let him into the hall, then it seemed like that opened the door for the others. But I didn't even consider that. I, I just got to the point personally where, you know, it, it got tiring, it was exhausting, it was stressful to try and separate who should be, who shouldn't be. Did this guy cheat? Did he actually fail a test? Is he just under suspicion? Is it just because his head grew three sizes, it's regular size? Is it because he had a big spike in production in his late 30s into his 40s? You know, where to draw the line? I mean, obviously, I know Manny Ramirez has failed a couple tests. I know what happened with Rafael Palmero, so that, that's a little bit clear. But, you know, guys like Bonds and Clemens, it's like, all right, who, who appeared, what report, or who didn't, but it was rumored, and there are suspicions attached to Bagwell. There were with Piazza, and I, I got to where it was just so hard to know where to draw the line, especially as more and more of these players come on the ballot. So I finally kind of just conceded the points that, all right, these guys are, are really legendary figures in the game. I'm going to vote them in. I won't have a major issue if they don't make it, but I just felt like it got to the point where I finally had to put them on the ballot. 
And, you know, you, I caught a lot of heat when I revealed the ballot, but I caught a lot of heat when I didn't put those players on. Like, who am I to play God, judge and jury? It's a Hall of Fame, and it's, it's you know, uh, it's not supposed to be for every guy who's squeaky clean, whatever. So, uh, and, you know, there are guys in there that probably weren't clean, and we never knew about it. So, you know, it's, I, at some point I just figured, you know, I'm done trying to, to figure out who should, who shouldn't just go with, you know, guys that I feel like their numbers warrant it, what they accomplished. And hopefully, you know, guys like Bonds and Clemens were already on their way to the hall before the suspicions really built. Bonds already won multiple most valuable player awards before he bulked up. So, but again, I'm not open to criticism, but like I said, I was getting criticized a lot when I didn't include them. Now you didn't vote for Manny Ramirez, who did have the two positive tests plus the survey test he flunked in 2003. Is that where you draw the line, an actual positive test? You will not vote for those guys? I mean, I would think I'm more inclined not to. Now, in this case as well, you know, it's a 10-player limit. So even if I was okay with him first year on the ballot, there wasn't going to be a spot. But even a guy like Pudge Rodriguez, everybody has their suspicions with him. He, he certainly looked like he reduced in size quite a bit later in his career. He was noticeably thinner, though maybe he just went on a really good diet. I don't know. That's another guy. Do You know, where, where do you draw the line there? But it's a little bit clearer with Manny, but also I think the 10-player limit uh, came into effect. And, and, you know, I've, I've been trying every year to get Lee Smith in. I failed with Dale Murphy. I figured I had one more shot at Smith and, and one more with Reigns. So I thought I'd, you know, give them a try. They'll be off the ballot after this year. But yeah, Manny, it's a little bit clear when you have the, uh, the multiple uh, suspensions. And you did vote for two closers, Trevor Hoffman and Lee Smith. Do you think that the BBWA is overpopulating closers at this point? Maybe I value the whole closer thing more than others. I just know at one point, Lee Smith was the all-time saves leader, and that stat may not resonate with everybody. But to me, it was like, I just kind of think of that name and, and remember him and think that's a guy who, you know, deserves to be in. But obviously, a lot of people disagree, and so he's not going to make it, uh, at least by you know time he comes off the ballot. But I'm not as opposed to relievers as others, just like I'm not as opposed to them getting Cy Young votes. I mean, I thought it was ridiculous that Zach Britton wasn't a finalist for the Cy Young. And other people thought I was crazy and that they shouldn't even be considered for the award. So it's interesting, though, that as the, uh, the importance of, of the late-inning relievers increases, the value, and you see what they're getting on the market now, it's kind of spurred this whole new debate about you know, well, have we been, uh, you know, underestimating them and, and uh, maybe, you know, they should get more respect than they have been in the past. Quickly on Zach Britton, you mentioned him, and I wonder if there's any lingering tension between him and Buck Showalter after Showalter didn't use him in the wildcard game last year. Is there? No, you know, I, I haven't sensed any, and I, I've talked to Zach multiple times, you know, on and off the record, and there's no doubt that it was disappointment and confusion of why he wasn't used. And it didn't sit well in the clubhouse at the time. But again, Buck has so much respect, commands so much respect in that clubhouse that even though guys disagreed with it and were really disappointed in it, they're already over. It was not like there's now all of a sudden Buck has lost the clubhouse. And, and, you know, I think Buck softened on it a little bit. The more you talk to him about it, the more he says, obviously we had it to do over again. You would have done it differently. And that's the kind of thing now you just have to kind of wear and it's been a tough off season for him. You know, he seemed a little more defiant after the game, uh, and kind of pointing out there are things that go on that you know you can't always broadcast, whatever. But we knew it wasn't a health issue because Zach said he was fine, and Buck said that Zach was fine. So I think you know, obviously, if Buck had to do over again, I understood his reasoning. I think it was more about tie game on the road type thing, looking for the safe situation. But obviously, if you have to do over again, 
not only do you use Zach, but you certainly don't bring in Abaldo Jimenez in that situation. He had like a 7.77 ERA in his first inning this season, and that was his first inning. It just happened to be the 11th of the wild card game. So it just wasn't a good match at all to bring him in, even though he was throwing really well at that point. That was as a starter in September. It wasn't coming out of the bullpen in the 11th inning. But I, I think, you know, Zach disappointed, but also he's got a really good relationship with Buck, and I think they've both kind of moved on from that the best they can. I want to go back to the uh, Hall of Fame a little bit and get your thoughts on Kurt Schilling. He's someone that's lost a lot of votes, and part of the reason why he's lost a lot of the votes is because of his political views. What are your thoughts on Kurt Schilling and him losing so many votes? Yeah, I mean, he, for me, it, it's never about that. I'm, and believe me, I think he should stay off Twitter. I, I've said this to people. I would, you know, if I had to put him in a car, drive him into the country, open the door, kick him out, and speed off to get him off social media, I would do that. He should stay far away from it. But that's not the reason why I wouldn't vote him in. And he's one of those bubble guys for me, right or wrong, along with you know Larry Walker's another one, Billy Wagner, guys that, who knows, next year they could be on the ballot. In fact, I'm pretty sure Walker will be on mine. Uh, and Schilling, maybe I should give him more strong consideration because I, I, I put Mucina on there, not Schilling, and people say well, that doesn't make any sense. Uh, so maybe I need to reexamine that. But, it, but again, it's a crowded ballot with a 10-player limit. And he's just always been one of those guys that's kind of been on the bubble for me. But honestly, as much as I disagree with a lot of what he's been saying, and I certainly don't condone the lynching of media or anybody else, that didn't factor in for me at all. I mean, even before he he said some really dumb things, I had not put him on my ballot. The writers voted this year to make all ballots public next year. Starting next year, all the ballots will be made public. What do you think of that decision? You know, I, I have mixed feelings. I mean, on one hand, I understand the importance of the transparency, and I think a, a lot of people, including myself, reveal the ballot anyway. But I don't know if anybody should be absolutely forced. I, I, it, it's okay unless it's going to start affecting how people vote. And if it does, then that's a problem. If there are people who normally would have gone one way but then don't want to face all the heat they're going to catch with a ballot being public and therefore are swayed to vote differently, then then that is a problem. And I, I don't see – you know I don't know, maybe – it becomes a privacy issue, and I understand both sides of it. If you have the ballot, you should be willing to go ahead and, you know, you're making your picks, and you should be up for, you know, the critique and the criticism that comes with it. But I wouldn't want somebody to be affected or have that impact how they vote simply because they're concerned about any kind of backlash. Uh, but I had a feeling it was coming to this because pretty much all the other picks are made public. You know, when you vote for the awards, the BBWAA awards, they're all listed. Uh, so I, I, I knew this was coming, but like I said, it doesn't impact me, but I would worry about people who might change their votes now because of that. I think it will affect some votes, but I think it will affect the votes. For example, I don't think it will affect someone saying, oh, I, I was embarrassed that I voted for Fred McGriff, so now I'm not going to vote for Fred McGriff and I'm going to vote for Kurt Schilling instead. I don't think it'll go that way, but I think what it might do is eliminate some of the cartoon votes that happen at the bottom of the ballot sometimes, where like Jacques Jones gets a vote or two. I think it may eliminate that. And the other thing I think it may help with on the reverse side of that is I think it may pave the way for someone getting in unanimously. I think if those three guys who didn't vote for Griffey last year knew their ballots were being made public, maybe they wouldn't have done that, you know? Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point, and those, those would be the benefits of it for sure. And uh, you know, go back to your first point, when people talk about you know, voting for PED guys makes a mockery of it or sending in a blank ballot makes a mockery. Nothing makes more of a mockery than somebody voting for a Jock Jones or someone like that, someone who your, your amazer is even on the ballot, and all of a sudden they're getting one or two votes because they were a nice guy or somebody thinks it's funny. That's, to me, that person, you should examine whether they should still be allowed to have a ballot. 
the other stuff, it's just a matter of opinion. But so you're right. Maybe doing this will prevent some of the, the clown votes that we've seen in the past. What's your overall philosophy when you assemble your ballot? What do you look at and what are you trying to do when you're, when you're filling it out? I mean, you know, you've obviously you examine the stats, kind of cross-check with other guys on the ballot, other guys in the hall. And, and some of it's just that kind of that feeling where, and I realize I say this and then I look and a lot of it's watered down, but you know, when I used to think of the Hall of Fame and I thought it, it's for the legendary guys, the DiMaggio's. And, and Williams and Barra and, you know, Cy Young, whatever. I mean, it should be those kind of almost mythical type figures, but that's obviously not the case anymore. I mean, you know, Jeff Bagwell doesn't fit in that category, but, you know, Tim Raines doesn't. These are guys you should be in. Uh, but so I've kind of had to move past that a little bit and just accept the fact that they're not all going to be these guys that we were at all in the Ty Cobbs and whatever. Uh, but, you know, I, I just, again, I, a lot of it's stats and I kind of, you know, I talk to other people and I look at how others are voting and then consider, well, am I doing the wrong, wrong thing here? Like, for instance, all the support that a guy like Schilling gets and Walker gets and they don't have my vote. I'm thinking, well, maybe I'm missing something and I'll go back. But there's no perfect ballot, that's for sure. And that's why, even though it's, it's fine to debate this stuff, the people that really get worked up online, social media, and think you should lose your ballot and call you an idiot, it's like, okay, we're not going to agree. That doesn't mean your ballot's better than mine or whatever. You know, you're just not, there's not the absolute perfect ballot. You could take anyone's ballot and pick apart. Well, if you pick this guy, then why didn't you pick that guy? Would you have voted for more guys if, if space allowed? You know, I, I may have, like that would be a way to get like a, for me at least, a, a walker in, somebody like that. But at the same time, it's not like I'm voting for all them thinking, okay, I wonder if all 10 are going to be inducted. You know that they're not. Uh, and I don't know. I mean, I, 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 could, I think overall it would probably be a good idea to expand it. Like, why limit it? You should be able to vote for as many as you want as long as, again, you're not suddenly making the clown votes and putting everybody on there. I'm not sure what the purpose is for the cutoff anyway. But uh, I know there were years where uh, 10 was, has been plenty. And this just happened to be the one year where it wasn't. There been, I'm pretty sure there were some years where I didn't vote for all 10. I'd have to go back. Uh, I may have done, you know, seven, six or seven, something like that. It just seemed like this year was the one where there's been more of an outcry, where the 10-player limit just doesn't seem fair. You've been listening to Rock Kubatko. Rock covers the Orioles for Masson. You can give him a follow on Twitter at Masson, Rock, R-O-C-H. Rock, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. Hey, my pleasure. Good talking to you.